And welcome to a special edition of Hank Unplugged. This, of course, is the podcast that takes you out of the studio into my office for a laid-back conversation with some of the most interesting, informative, inspirational people on the planet. But today, a little twist on our theme. I had a conversation with Cindy Martin Morgan. She's the daughter of the late Dr. Walter Martin, who was the founder of the Christian Research Institute, well known as the father of the counter-cult movement, a titan in apologetics. And Cindy called me. She wanted to have a conversation, and uh, she wanted to record the conversation so she could use the material for a book or for other purposes. So I said I'd be delighted to have this conversation with her. Well, we had this conversation. It lasted about two hours. And we thought when the conversation was over, perhaps you'd be interested in listening in. So again, a new twist on Hank Unplugged, as I am not the interviewer or the one that initiates the conversation but I'm the one that is answering the questions which are very ably posed to me by Cindy Martin Morgan. So I hope you enjoy this particular edition of Hank Unplugged. But as always, if you do, if this is helpful to you, if you want other people to listen, well, share what you've heard with people that you know. Also go to iTunes and give us a five-star rating. This will ensure that the Hank Unplugged podcast gets into the hands of people all over the planet. Well, right now, stay tuned, because I think you'll find the conversation between Cindy Martin Morgan and myself interesting, perhaps even inspirational. Hey, Cindy. Hi, Hank. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for being willing to sit down with me like this. This is so kind of you to do this. We're kind of switching chairs today, aren't we? (laughs) Absolutely, yeah. I get to be interviewed, yeah. Yeah, well, thank you. And how are you feeling, first off? I just wondered. Well, I feel great. I just flew in from Southern California last night. And so, yeah, I get a little jet lag going on, but not too bad. Oh, good. I'm glad it's not too bad. Okay, well, let's get started. Uh, my first question is that I was wondering probably the most to hear more details about is, what was that moment where you turned to Jesus Christ? What was the defining moment for you when you knew you needed a Savior and you were lost and you had that feeling of, you know, He is God? Yeah, it's a long story because I actually grew up in a Christian home. Uh, I grew up in Holland, or I was born in Holland at least, and I grew up in what was called the Hrifemirte Kerk, or you would say in... Uh, in English, the Reformed Church, or the Christian Reformed Church. So I grew up in that context for, you know, many, many years of my life. I was going to church, and uh, I was doing all the things that Christians do. Read your Bible as a discipline, learn to memorize the catechism, be faithful in going to church, and all these kinds of things were part and parcel of my growing up years. But as I grew older, particularly in my teenage years, I started questioning the Christian faith, uh, and particularly questioning the hard determinism that I was being taught, that God creates people who are doomed from the womb to a certain destruction. And I was you know, very conflicted by the hard determinism, and asking the questions, even 
of my parents, of my pastors, of my Christian school teachers, because I went to a Christian school, uh, I didn't get satisfying answers. And so I started to drift away from the Christian faith. And it wasn't just that, it was many other questions that I was asking. And of course, this was, um, you know, a very transitional time, not only for me personally, but also for the country. We immigrated first to Canada when I was three, and then to the United States when I was 14, 1964. I mean, that was Joan Baez, that was uh, the Beatles, that was, um, uh, you know, the year after the assassination, but we're still grieving the assassination of JFK, Bob Dylan, times are a-changing, you know. So it was a tremendous time of transition that was taking place. Uh, and here I was a new American, or newly in America. And at that time, my questions became more and more intense. And even at age 14, I, I thought, you know what, I, I don't believe in God. Uh, I, I don't really believe in God. I, I, I can't believe in the God that I've been brought up to believe in. I can't get satisfying answers. And after a while, I kind of moved off into what I would call practical atheism. Uh, I kept sort of being drawn back into the Christian faith, but for all practical purposes, I was uh, an atheist. I was living as though there is no such thing as God. And that didn't change until I was 29 years of age. So I drifted in and out of spirituality during that time, uh, but it didn't really change until I was 29 years of age, when three people from a local church, happened to be Cor Ridge, came and uh, they were going to visit someone that had visited the church and they um, they knocked on my door instead and uh, they invited me to go to a creation evolution seminar and that started me looking at the issue of origins and that led me into looking at if god created the universe then did that god reveal himself in time and space and resurrection is it logical to believe in the resurrection of jesus christ and finally to look at the uh, the validity of the Bible, is it a reliable authority? So at that time, it was 1979, uh, I, I came to faith in Christ. Uh, again, I came out of a church background, but then I realized, wow, I had just given up one kind of hard determinism for another, because in atheism, you believe that everything's controlled by genetics and brain chemistry, that we're, you know, the physical facts fix all the facts. And so we're fatalistically determined by our genetics and so forth. So it was at that time that I, I went, after searching those three great apologetic issues, looking at the issue of origins, resurrection, and the authority of Scripture, that I found myself on my knees asking Jesus Christ to be Lord and Savior of my life in a very intentional way. And I became a member of Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church. I learned how to share my faith through evangelism explosion and... Uh, the rest, as they say, is history. You know, as you were talking about your background growing up, you know, with your father was a pastor, of course, in the Reformed faith, I couldn't help but think of my own father and our theological talks that I had with him. And I didn't always agree with him and his responses to that. And I, I was kind of wondering, what was it like having dialogues with your father during the time where you, you weren't saved? You had all these questions how hard on your father was that? What, what kind of dialogue did you have with your father? Well, you know, we had a lot of conversations, um, some of them positive, some of them negative. Um, on a positive note, I remember during the time that we had the Cuban Missile Crisis, 
laying on the couch and trembling in terror because at that time there was the possibility that the world was going to go up in a nuclear holocaust. Mm. And I had been in church listening to my dad preach. And my dad was preaching on the Apostle Paul in Romans. Okay. And I don't remember the exact context, but I remember as a young boy listening, my dad was using the word Paulus. He was preaching in Dutch, actually. And as I was listening to the sermon, I, I blasphemed, or what I thought was I blasphemed the Holy Spirit. I thought I committed an unforgivable sin, you know, and I, it, just in my mind. And so when the, uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis happened, I thought, wow, I have committed an unforgivable sin. The world's going to go up in a, in a nuclear holocaust. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to hell forever. And I was trembling in fear. My dad came into the living room and he said to me, what's wrong? And I said, well, and I divulged to him that uh, during one of his sermons, I committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And, and he smiled at me and he said, if you had committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, you wouldn't be trembling right now. You wouldn't be worried about it. Mm-hmm. And that was a very edifying time. And, and to this day, I have used that illustration when people call me on the radio and say, I think I've committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And I say, well, that's not an act. Uh, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is a continuous, willful, ongoing rejection of the goodness and grace of God that could be yours. Absolutely. So that was a wonderful experience that I had with my dad. My dad taught me so many things that I didn't appreciate when I was growing up. He taught me discipline. He taught me respect, particularly respect for older people. Uh, he taught me integrity. He taught me fidelity. Uh, he taught me commitment, that love is not a feeling, it's a commitment. He modeled how a relationship between a man and a woman ought to be. Uh, He and my mom, my mom's still alive, were madly in love. (laughs) And they were until the day that my dad went home to be with the Lord in 1997. So many, many things that my dad modeled for me, although I can say that there were times that I appreciated that and times that I didn't understand the gift that I had been given. After I became a Christian uh, and committed my life to the Lord, then I realized what a tremendous background that I had received in the church. Yes. In discipline, in memorizing the Heidelberg Catechism, in being disciplined, in being a faithful member of a church, and all these kinds of things. So the things I resented growing up, then I realized, well, I was given a tremendous gift. Oh, you were a firm foundation. A firm foundation, yes. So, uh, you know, the reason I give that is context. Is a lot of times you say, well, I came to faith in Christ when I was 29 years old, and people think, well, you started at 29 as a blank slate. No, I didn't. I had a deep, deep well to draw from in terms of my own Christian experience as a, as a result of the, the context of which I grew up. Absolutely. God is working before we know it. Absolutely. That's true. Wow, that is really precious, that testimony. Um, how did you meet Kathy? Well, you know, when I committed my life to the Lord, uh, Kathy was deeply involved in evangelism explosion. And uh, she became my first trainer, actually. Uh, evangelism explosion was a program that is a worldwide program, really, 
that uh, was designed to equip Christians not only in classroom training, but also in the field where evangelism was more caught than taught. And so she was already a trainer and she invited me into the program and I became a trainee and she was my first teacher. So she taught me how to share my faith, both practically as well as, you know, in in the actual learning process itself. And uh, so I quickly became a a trainer myself and uh, a trainer of trainers. And uh, that was a life transformational experience. But that's how I met Kathy. Wow. Now, did it click with you right away? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You know, at first I was thinking about setting her up with a friend of mine, but... uh, And I, I remember talking to D. James Kennedy. Uh, he counseled us, you know, when when um, we decided we would start dating. And um, he, I still remember being in his office and looking at me. He said, if you don't marry that girl, you are the dumbest person on the planet. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> that is so, so, so sweet. Wow. So the rest is history there. <laughs> How long have you guys been married now? Well, we have been married since 1980. Okay, yeah. and 12 children, right? <laughs> yes. What inspired you guys to have so many children? Uh, well, I, it's not you guys. It's Kathy, you know. She uh, <laughs> she wanted to have a large family. Every time she got pregnant, I was uh, a little bit upset about it, you know. So she would find a nice way to tell me she was pregnant again. And... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, but, uh, you know, again, in retrospect, it's sort of like I was saying about my parents. They gave me a foundation. Well, you know, uh, I honestly never had any intent to have a large family. But now, in retrospect, um, you know, when your kids grow up, they become your friends and uh, you get to travel with them. Yeah, it's just fantastic. Uh, So I'm very, very grateful that Kathy wanted to have a large family. Although at the time, I, um, you know, I kind of think it. Oh, how are we going to handle one more, one more child? But you <laughs> well, know, that's, that's a great <laughs> example of how God always provides. He does. He really does provide, and God had a plan. He most certainly did. And he, he shows you how good that plan is as time moves on. That's right. So who do you consider in your life your number one mentor? Oh, my goodness. That's probably going to be tough. <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. I mean, you're not I've had to find s- it just one. <laughs> well, I've, I've had so many great mentors. I mean, your dad was a great mentor to me. Oh. Uh, he, uh, you know, he was willing to stand for truth no matter the cost. And, uh, you know, I remember so many statements that he made in that regard. And Chuck Colson was a great mentor to me. Early on, R.C. Sproul, mm, who... You know, went home to be with the Lord last year. He was a very, very dear friend of mine. You know, when he was back in Ligonier, Pennsylvania, and I was just a brand new Christian, and so this is the early 80s, he would always invite me up to Ligonier and we'd play golf together. And he'd come knocking on my little cabin door. (laughs) You know, they had those cabins out there, and he'd come knocking on my cabin door when the sun came up, and we'd play golf all day. Then we'd go into his driveway and we'd shoot baskets, play horse or pig. Then we'd go into his, we got dark, we'd go into his uh, basement and play pool. And uh, so we developed a very, very fantastic friendship. And, you know, we had some theological differences, but obviously we're united on the essentials. And he, he really modeled for me how uh, you could disagree without being disagreeable. In other words, he modeled for me that we could disagree on some major, major doctrines, 
but still secondary doctrines. Yeah. But that whole idea of in essentials unity, non-essentials liberty, and all things charity, you know, came home in a very practical sense through our relationship. So he had a, you know, early on as a brand new Christian, I was fortunate enough to become friends with R.C., and he had a tremendous impact on me. And, you know, the big thing about R.C., I mean, he had his warts and moles and wrinkles. He certainly wasn't a perfect person, but I will tell you, he was the absolute real deal. Yeah. There, he was the absolute real deal. And I remember not all that long before he died, he, uh, he got permission to play golf, and he called me up. His nickname for me was Henry. He called me up and said, Henry, can you come to Orlando? We've got to play golf. So the doctors give me, a, you know. And so we went out and played golf. And he said, you know, Vesta doesn't want me to play 18 holes. But golf is not nine holes. It's 18 holes. And so we played 18 holes of golf. We sat in the clubhouse afterwards and talked. But, you know, we had certain things that we no longer discussed. I mean, he knew my view and I knew his. Yeah. And uh, we, we just moved on beyond those things. But, okay, now I want to know who is better at golf. <laughs> well, you know, I'll tell you, we were very evenly matched. Uh, when we first started playing golf uh, in, in, in Ligonier, we were very evenly matched. Uh, both of us, I don't know, this probably doesn't mean a lot to a, a non-golfer, but to a golfer, we were both four handicaps at the time uh, when I first met him. And um, he, he, he could flat play. I mean, that's the, the, that means you're a pretty good golfer, four handicaps. So he, he played great. You know, I have memories of being better than him, but I'm sure he has memories of being better than me. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, oh, that's hilarious. Well, you were so blessed, both of you, to have that time together in the Lord and and to have that, you know, fun time too, that downtime. Yeah. I mean, I learned so much from him during those years. I used to listen to his tapes. Um, I used to ask him a lot of questions, but I learned a lot by example as well. Yeah, that's wonderful. Well, thank you for sharing that. Okay, um, how did you first meet Walter Martin? Well, you know, we first met at Simon Greenleaf School of Law. I was doing a memory seminar there, and your dad was there sitting in the back row, and uh, he invited me to go to dinner with him after I did the memory seminar, and then we started brainstorming. Your dad was just brilliant. And he immediately started thinking when he heard me do a memory seminar there at Simon Greenleaf School of Law that, that we could take the cults and where they deviated from the historic Christian faith and use those deviations as springboards or opportunities for sharing the gospel, but yeah. now to make those memorable and uh, help people to be able to remember the information, not just hear it, but remember it and thereby use the information as a way of reaching people. So that's really how we first started uh, our discussions and first uh, began our friendship. Yeah, I was wondering if it might have been there because I was trying to, you know, strain my brain and remember as well, where did he say he met you? And I could not remember. Yeah, that's where we first met. I don't think we ever met before that. I think that was the first time. Okay. What was the greatest thing you think you learned from him before God took him? Well, you know, we for many, many years had a moniker because truth matters. And I think that if there's one thing that comes to mind immediately is a person willing to stand for truth no matter the cost, doing what he did because truth matters. 
You know, I, I don't know if it was original to him, but I remember him saying many times, truth is so obscure in these times and falsehood so established that unless you love the truth, you cannot know it. Or tolerance when it comes to personal relationships is a virtue, but tolerance when it comes to truth is a travesty. So he was a man committed to truth. He lived for truth. He knew that truth mattered. And that if you ever get to a place where civilization abdicates truth, you become not only post-truth, but become post-Christian. And that's, that's the milieu in which we find ourselves today. Absolutely. What convinced you to accept his offer of becoming CRI's executive vice president? What motivated you to accept it? Well, kind of an interesting situation if you look at it from a historical standpoint, because, you know, at the time when Walter wanted me to come in and lead the ministry, uh, my wife was absolutely certain that we would never move to California. Mm. And so when we were in discussions about this with the board, um, I decided to tell the board and to tell your dad that what I would do is I would, um, I would do it from a distance. I would do it staying in Atlanta, where we're living at the time, and commuting to Southern California, which, by the way, I never thought that either the board or your dad would go along with. But I, you know, it was sort of my way of appeasing my wife and appeasing your dad. Um, so I, you know, I, and I didn't think they'd go along with it. I said, you know, I will, I will commute. And so um, we decided to do that on a one-year trial basis. And, you know, the board agreed, and most importantly, your dad agreed. And so that's how I really started working with CRI and uh, leading CRI. And the reason I did it from a personal standpoint is I felt like I could offer a lot to CRI in terms of giving CRI structure and accountability. And uh, I felt like I had something significant to offer. But the other side of the coin was very important to me. I had the opportunity to learn from your dad and to learn about apologetics, which I didn't know that much about. I mean, I, I knew a certain amount about apologetics, but I wasn't a seasoned apologist. And I certainly wasn't seasoned when it came to countercult ministry. Uh, so I felt like it was a great opportunity to add to what I'd already learned through Evangelism Explosion. I knew how to share my faith, but I didn't know really, uh, certainly not by the standard of your dad, how to take the objections of the Christian faith and use them as springboards or opportunities to share the gospel. So I was learning a tremendous amount from your dad. So I felt like, boy, this is a win-win situation. I have something to offer to CRI and CRI is something that I can learn. And I have the, uh, the an incredible privilege of, of hanging out with the father of the counter-cult I mean, if you look at the whole countercult movement, your dad was the father of that. And here I have an opportunity to, to hang out with him. I mean, so it was fantastic. And I, I felt like that year that we were doing this on a trial basis, um, you know, we'll see what happens at the end of the year. Well, in the middle of that year, well, towards the end of that year, your dad, of course, died of an occlusion of the right coronary artery of his heart. And and um, the rest is history again. You know, um, then it was no longer commuting, uh, but it was immediately moved to Southern California and, and uh, do what we had intended I would do if everything worked out after a year. Mm. 
And then, of course, you know, there was no resistance from Kathy. It was, uh, yeah, this is hand to the plow, move forward. This is God's calling in your life. Yes, absolutely. Well, I'm glad you had that time with him, Hank, too, to be mentored like that in those ways that you mentioned, because I don't think you could have had a, a better one in terms of the cults, obviously, and apologetics. So God God definitely was, was positioning you there um, by my father teaching you and grooming you kind of to, to take that slot. And, and neither of you knew, neither of you had a clue how bad the situation really was, how bad his health really was. And I wondered um, where you were when you first heard that he was home with the Lord. Yeah, I can remember exactly where I was. Uh, it was a Sunday morning, uh, as I recall. Mm-hmm. Um, if my memory serves me right. Yeah, Sunday or Monday. I, I mine's getting. <laughs> I'm getting old here. Yeah, I can't say it was certainly, but I, it, it may have been a Monday morning. But yeah, it may I, have been I Monday. thought it was a. Yeah. At any rate, I was staying at a hotel. It was, uh, boy, Lake Forest Drive, and I forget what the cross street there is. There's a Black Angus there. I can sort of see it all in my mind, but I, re- I forget what the hotel was. But I was staying at a hotel there. I had come in to you know work with CRI. I was going to be there for a week or two weeks. I can't remember how long. Okay. And uh, I had just gone out for a walk in the morning, um, which was my habit. And uh, it's very, very early in the morning, and I got a call from Darlene. And uh, the first words I heard was, Hank, Walter's dead. And uh, so that... uh, uh, well, that turned my world upside down. Yes, indeed. Ah, oh, well, it was wonderful of the Lord to work it out where you were in California, too, at the time. I think that that was definitely a blessing that you were right there yeah. as well. Yeah. yeah. And Kathy was with you? Uh, no, Kathy was not with me, but of course came immediately. Right, right. Hmm. Uh, do you have... Um, Moving away a little bit from that sadness, of course, that was such a such a uh, uh, like an earthquake. I think happened in California mm. uh, for you, for us, uh, for CRI, and for everyone who loved loved my father and loved the ministry. It, it did seem like an earthquake had a, a pretty big one had occurred <laughs> on June twenty sixth, nineteen eighty nine. Uh, yeah, and I, a, I do think it was a Monday. Um, I, yeah, I, I do too. I, yeah, I do think it was a Monday. Yeah. But uh, moving past, I think, the, the grief and the, uh, all of it that God brought us all through, I wondered, uh, do you have any kind of uh, story, like an anecdote, during your friendship with my father? Anything stand out to you? Any funny moment uh, that you remember with him or any interesting exchange with him that stands out in your mind? Well, I mean, your dad was a, he was just a one of a kind. Um, so many things I remember about your dad. I remember being in a car with your dad and with my wife and um, how he stopped at a, just just at a little corner flower thing that he saw and he bought my wife flowers and just stopped the car, bought her flowers mm-hmm. and gave her flowers. Uh, those kinds of things that he would do. I remember... Uh, I'd watch him eat, and he'd say to me, Hank, you know, you know, all too many Christians are digging their own graves with their own knives and forks. Mm. And then he would be pouring 
sweet and low into his wine and mixing it and drinking it. <laughs> uh, I remember that. Oh, I would just, I would just laugh. And here's a story. I don't know if you want me to tell you this one, but I will. Yeah, okay. I, I remember picking him up once when he was, I think uh, he had come to Atlanta to see me, or I, I don't remember the exact circumstances, but that's what, what I recall. And he was in the hotel, and I went to pick him up at the hotel, and I uh, knocked on the door, and he opened the door, and he didn't have his toupee on. Oh, okay. <laughs> and I just started laughing, not because he looked bad. It just was different, you know. Uh-huh. And I started laughing, and I had to try to. I'd never told him the truth why I was laughing, but it was just it was just sort of a shock. I was like, you know, I, and it's sort of like when I. Uh, you know, I had to cut off all my hair. It's <laughs> a shock. I mean, that happened as an accident where I was uh, I was trimming my own hair and I forgot to put the guard on and I put a stripe right down my uh, the side of my hair when I had hair and I had cut it all off. So I mean, the transition. Oh my goodness, was that before you were married to Kathy? Or <laughs> no, during? no, it was after. In fact, you know, Stephen. And she still loved you. She stayed uh, with you. You know, Stephen. <laughs> I I I did it at work. I was just trimming my hair. I, I and I, you know, Stephen's been with me forever. And I I walked over to Stephen's desk. I said, Stephen, look. I said, Will you do the honors? So he finished the job. <laughs> <sighs> Oh, my goodness. Well, maybe down deep you just knew the Bible answer man had to be bald. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> that must have been it. Yeah. Well, I, I, have to I mean, there's you. so many funny stories. I mean, there's one that you know, the the, okay. the one where where your dad is doing the Bible answer man broadcast, and he's leaning back on that old chair he had, and, and all of a sudden yep. he leans too far and he ends up on the floor, and all the while he's answering a question, and he never misses a breath or a beat. He just, yeah. just as though nothing happened, laying flat on his back with his legs up in the air. Oh, yes, I remember that. I think I think he was running late, too, wasn't he? And he was racing in there or something, and he jumped in there, and it broke. Or, well, wasn't he running late? He was always late. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, whatever. I don't remember all the details. I just remember, you know, it, it taught me something, that no matter what happens, you have to have poise. <laughs> and he definitely had poise. He did. He really did. And, you know, just you talking about him answering the door without his toupee on, that was, he really just was comfortable in his own skin, which is something that I also write about in the book. And I do have a childhood Which is really cool. I never thought about it like that. But, you know, yeah, he could have not answered the door, but he was, yeah, he was just as comfortable in his own skin. He really, really was. It just cracked me up how he was. And there's a story I won't tell you about. It, It is in the book. It's a childhood story about his toupee that I think will entertain you. So <laughs> I definitely did mention the toupee because, you know, he was very, he was a really funny person. He he made fun of himself too. And he just wasn't a really prideful person. And he, he would laugh at himself. He would laugh at others, you know, in a, in a loving sort of way. Yeah. But I really loved that about him. So that story is in the book. And, and thank you for sharing that other one because that's just, <laughs> I wish I could have seen the look on your face, but I sort of can imagine. <laughs> When he opened the door like that, so but it doesn't surprise me he did it because he was just that way. So yeah, he either loved him or you know people generally either loved him or they they didn't. <laughs> so, <laughs> he was just right. You know what you what you saw was what you got. So. Well, he you know the thing about it though, and the reason I told you the story about the flowers is he had a really unbelievably tender side. Mm, he did. Yeah, he really did. Thank you for sharing that too. That's so sweet. Um, 
Okay, what, moving along here, what inspired you to write your very first book? Was it the memory thing, the memory book? Well, you know, I, I did produce some training materials on memory, but I never published them. When okay. I, when I, um, when I became president of CRI, one of the big, big uh, disappointments, I suppose, for me was not just the cults that were preying on the church from without, but the corruption of the church from within. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, was, I was terribly bothered by the Word of Faith movement, yes. uh, by TBN at the time. Uh, and, and the reason I was bothered by it is I saw that what in essence was happening is Christ was being reduced to a means to people's ends. Mm-hmm. That instead of being the end, he was just a means to their ends. Yeah. That people were invited to the master's table, not for the love of the master, but rather for what was on the master's table. And um, so it was a perversion of Christianity. It was turning Christianity on its head. Yeah. And I was, I was very exercised over all of that. And so in 19... Well, probably 1989, towards the end of the year, beginning of 1990, I had in my mind that I wanted to write a book. Uh, And I I felt like God gave me the title Christianity in Crisis. Mm -hmm. And so I really felt very strongly that I was called to do that. And I remember getting a lot of resistance, uh, first from Elliot Miller. And it's one of the most endearing qualities about Elliot for me is that I learned something about him right away, which was that he strongly disagreed with me. He did not have the same view of the Word of Faith movement that I did. He saw it more in line with sort of the charismatic or the Pentecostal movement in general, as opposed to a perversion of Christianity. And I, I remember, you know, having a tremendous amount of respect for Elliot, of course, and certainly for his position, for his longevity with CRI long before I got there, for his relationship to your dad. And so I had a great respect for him. And I remember saying to Elliot, look, let's talk this through, because I know you're a person of truth, and truth will win out. Either I'll agree with you and not write the book, or you'll agree with me and then I'll write the book. And as it turned out, in this particular case, he agreed with me. But it was great because it established not only a friendship, a collegiality, but uh, something that had enduring qualities for the Ministry of Christian Research Institute. He was one of those people, and there were many, that I would, I would seek counsel from before I actually engaged in a project. And this was a long project because I didn't, you know, the book wasn't published till 1993. So I worked on that book for a long, long time. Of course, I would say a new author. And uh, when that book came out, it became a mega bestseller. And um, ironically, uh, it, it not only had an impact in terms of selling a lot of copies, but it also spawned a lot of the jealousy within the countercall community because all of a sudden here was this guy that really nobody knew about and suddenly he was a best-selling author. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. it was interesting because the title, you know, I, I had a particular way in which I wanted to do that book. I formed that book around the acronym FLAWS. And so I... When the editor came, and I'm a perfectionist, so I worked on that book for three years, and when the editor got a hold of it, he wanted to change the whole book. First of all, he wanted to change the title. 
Secondly, he wanted change. He said, you can't use an acronym. Um, you know, that's uh, too cutesy and you got too much alliteration. And I remember telling that editor, uh, I told him, I said, you know what? This is my signature. This is how I write. I labored over it. I'm not going to change it. And if you, you know, don't want the book or if the publisher doesn't want the book, that's fine. But this is how I want to write the book. And that, of course, has become the signature for all of my books. Pretty much all of my books have been forged around acronyms so that the material within the book becomes memorable for people, which is the very thing that started my relationship with your dad, to make things memorable. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, you really hit a nerve. I think that my father had that same uh he had that same concern, you know, where the prosperity gospel was concerned. He, you know, you know, of course, he had been on TVN and had not been invited back, and he had really confronted them. And it was really a, a really high priority of his to confront this. You know, it's interesting you say that because I, for some reason or other, I probably knew that, but for some reason or other, I didn't fully understand how strongly your dad felt until I started listening to some of his tapes. Yes. And you really carried that torch. You really did. Because that was one of the, that was one of the highest things on his priority list that he was fighting at the time of his death. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. That's, that's absolutely true. And again, I, I mean, I, I went back and watched video and I, I listened to a message that he had given. There's no question that what you're saying is true. Yes, absolutely. Okay, now, if you could be only remembered for one of your books as the 20-plus you've written, uh, which book would you choose? You know, that's like asking me which one of my children I like best. <laughs> um, that's a really difficult question to answer. I mean, you know, I always say that my best book is the book I'm working on. Um, and I'm working on a book right now titled Truth Matters, Life Matters More, Discovering the Authentic Christian Life. So that's the book that I'm most passionate about right now, and I'm engrossed in writing. Uh, the book that I think about often as a very, very significant book is a book titled Has God Spoken? And the reason that book is so important to me is because it establishes the authenticity and authority of Scripture and does so in a memorable way. So the first part of that book is demonstrating that the Bible's divine as opposed to merely human in origin. But the second part of that book I think is equally important because what it does is it teaches people to read the Bible in the sense in which it's intended. In other words, people learn the art and science of biblical interpretation. It's an art in that the more you do it, the better you get at it. Yeah. It's a science in that rules apply. And so one of the big problems with people who read the scripture is on the one hand, you have people like Bart Ehrman, who's made a cottage industry of discrediting the Bible. He will read a particular passage and, and, and he'll read it not in the sense in which it's intended, and so he gets something out of the passage that's not intended and inaccurate from his perspective. So he'll read, for example, a parable, like the parable of the mustard seed. And he'll say, you know, Jesus said the mustard seed is the smallest of all seeds, and orchid seeds are smaller, therefore Jesus has to be a false teacher. Uh, so he tries to make a parable walk on all fours. But you have the same problem within the Christian community as well, where you have people that don't know how to read the Bible in the sense in which it's intended, 
And as a result of that, they come up with all kinds of fictitious paradigms that they impose on the scriptures. So again, it gets back to the issue that you need to know how to read the Bible in the sense in which it's intended. Absolutely, I agree. Okay, uh, one thing that I have admired about you uh, for so many years, Hank, is your absolute unapologetic stand for the unborn. And I just have really been very proud of CRI for uh, walking in the truth of God's Word, you know, in terms of the value of these unborn people that have, you know, have their lives threatened by abortion. And, you know, you've supported me with my with my book, Rescue Me, and, uh, of course, dealing with abortion. Uh, and the songs, the pro-life songs, you've uh, stood behind those as well and have just stood strong in, in your own efforts, whose ethics, whose morals, uh, uh, the book that came out uh, through UNCRI that uh, deals with this matter as well. And it's just been uh, such a joy to see you rise. I mean, you were already risen to the occasion when I met you. I mean, I, I was always impressed by the fact that you were such a strong advocate for those who could not speak for themselves. And I just wondered, in your life, uh, was there any kind of turning point in your life where that's concerned, where the pro-life issue hit you between the eyes and you just were grieved by it? Was there a turning point in that, or did you always, were you always very pro-life? Yeah, I was always very pro-life, but I'll tell you a couple of things. One is, you know, I I had uh, early on in my Christian life become familiar with Francis Schaeffer and was very, very impressed by a quote, which I can't necessarily get perfect off the top of my head, but uh, where he said that the abortion issue would be the watershed issue of our generation. And uh, I, I think that 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 was something that really impacted me, reading what Francis Schaeffer said about abortion. But I think on a practical level, on a personal level, I, I watched the birth of my children. Mm. And, uh, you know, it's, it's the most beautiful thing you can possibly imagine um, in, in my mind. It is. Uh, you, see, you see one human being come out of another human being. And, and you see the miracle of birth, you see the miracle of life, and you realize that that baby was always a baby. Uh, that baby was in different stages of development in the womb, but was always a child made in the image and likeness of God. To take the life of a child made in the image and likeness of God is the ultimate the ultimate abomination because that child is so vulnerable. Yes. And I think of my own wife. She was a preemie. I think she was born at five and a half months. Mm. Um, and, and so you see the horror of, of so many babies that have been aborted in, uh, when they're five and a half months. Yeah. And so it's seeing the birth process in, um, in so many occasions you know, with my wife and, and, and even with my children and my grandchildren. And so it, it's viscerally impactful to me. And I, I think this is one of the great holocausts in our midst. It's a holocaust that no longer has any excuse for it. In that we now have sonograms. We, there, there's no excuse whatsoever for thinking that this is not a child. We know that this is a person from the moment of conception not a fully developed personality, but a person. And now, of course, the abortion argument is shifting from people recognizing because of sonograms that this is a human being. No question about it. But now they're saying there's a difference between 
acknowledging that this is a human being and the human being having particular rights. Right. Meaning that uh, as that person develops, we decide when that person has rights. And that's a very, very uh, scary and slippery slope in that there are now ethicists saying that the decision isn't made while the child is in the womb, but the decision can be made after the parents see the child and determine whether that child is worthy of life. So you have Peter Singer and other ethicists from uh, this, in this particular case, Princeton, uh, deciding that, yeah, it might be good to allow three days after the child is born. But it's a very, very slippery slope, and I, I, I agree with Francis Schaefer. I think this is the watershed issue of our time. Absolutely. What was your initial reaction to your cancer diagnosis, Hank? Well, uh, peace. Um, I've been completely peaceful from the time I was diagnosed April 15th, 2017, until the present. And uh, it's never changed. Um, my, my sense was never that I was going to die. Um, I don't mean that in a presumptive way because I don't know. All the days ordained for me are written in his book before one of them came to be. And, and so, um, you know, I don't know how, how many years I have on this planet, but I never had a sense that I was going to die. I always had a sense that God was using this uh, for purposes that are, are beyond my ken, beyond my knowing. Um, and uh, it has been one of the greatest experiences of my life. I can, I can say that with all integrity. Um, it's put me in touch with people that suffer. Uh, I, I've lived a charmed life from a health standpoint. I've never been sick a day in my life. I don't even get colds. Um, and, um, you know, all of a sudden, uh, I got a cough, uh, in, in the early part of 2017, couldn't get rid of it. Um, doctor told me, well, this is just a bad uh, virus going around. You just deal with it. But feeling something else was going on and I kept being persistent and finally realizing, um, uh, being sent to an uh, oncologist uh, and, and, and uh, having a bone marrow um, biopsy and, and realizing that I had stage four mantle cell lymphoma. And uh, when I heard stage four, I thought, well, it's terminal. So immediately I started thinking, well, I got one more book to finish. Will I have time to finish that book? <laughs> and uh, so he was talking about I have to get in chemotherapy right away. And I was sort of thinking in my mind, and his voice was sort of like a, a distant voice in another room or something because I wasn't really focused on him. I was thinking, I was, I was trying to figure out how I was going to um, wrap up my life, quite frankly. And and so um, when I came back to... Uh, um, uh, to the present and away from my internal thoughts, um, I, I said to the doctor, uh, his name was Dr. Powell, I said, um, well, what if I don't do the chemo? Because I was thinking, you know, if it's stage four, what's the point? You know, maybe there's, maybe I'll live as long uh, and, and I don't have to go through the chemo process. I have all that poison pumped into my system. And he said, well, if you don't do chemo, you'll be dead in six months. And, uh, and I said, well, um, you know, I, I want to finish a book, so I want to be in good shape to finish that book and everything else. And, well, Hank, uh, uh, your, your particular cancer is mental cell lymphoma, and, and stage four isn't terminal. So he said, you're thinking it's terminal, right? I said, yeah, I mean, that's what I thought. The minute you said stage four, it's terminal. He said, no, no, this is not terminal. He said, um, you know, it's not curable right now. 
given the state of medicine, it's not, not curable, but it's not terminal. People go into long periods of remission. And so all of a sudden I got a different perspective because <laughs> I, I thought when I heard stage four, I said, well, it's, um, it's the end. Yeah. Uh, but um, it turns out that it's a, a, you know, one of the worst of the lymphomas, but it's, um, it's also the, the lymphoma that they have the, the best breakthroughs in. Praise the Lord for that. So I went through a year of uh, chemo, um, 2017, and the beauty of the chemo was it got the cancer out of my bones. And uh, but I never went into full remission, and uh, the tumors came back um, this year. And uh, so, by God's grace, I got into a clinical trial, and uh, the visible tumors, I had one, I, I think I showed it on Facebook, <laughs> it was on the, below my jaw, and, uh, and, that, and that, uh, that tumor just vaporized and uh, disappeared in, in two and a half weeks, I think it was. And uh, so I'm assuming that the same thing is true internally. I'm having a PET scan in a week's time, okay. uh, so I'll know for sure, but my blood markers are perfect. I mean, they're exactly the same as a healthy person. My hemoglobin is above 14. My white blood cell count is normal. My platelets, uh, my um, potassium, I mean, every marker is perfect. So, um, you know, the thing is, is uh, during the whole cancer period, it was fantastic because I saw how people really suffer. I, um, and I think it's, it's good to face uh, or stare your own mortality in the face. It gives you a true valuation of things. It uh, does. Did you did you feel God nearer to you during? I mean, have you felt God nearer to you than at any other time, or how, was there any? Well, yeah. I mean, a lot of reasons for that. I mean, I was chrismated on April 9th and diagnosed on April fifteenth, and um, you know, partaking of the real presence of Christ, I felt like uh, I was sustained not just by biological energy, but by an uncreated energy for only God is uncreated. And, and quite frankly, my doctor, who is at the top of the food chain when it comes to mental cell lymphoma, a doctor by the name of Dr. Ghosh, um, he, he said he's never seen anybody go through uh, stage four mental cell lymphoma in the way that I have. Uh, when I was having the chemo, I would go right back in and, and work. I do the, I do the show. Yeah, um, amazing. I, I, I never missed a day of work except for when I was actually in the hospital. You know, so, yeah, uh, every other chemo session was uh, uh, three days in the hospital. So for the chemo sessions in the hospital, obviously. I, but I'd get right out of the hospital. If I get out of the hospital at 3 o'clock, I'd be in the studio by, by 6 doing the show. And I have continued doing my work completely unhampered by my, my disease. And he says he's never seen anything like it. Um, I re really, by and large, don't have the appearance of having cancer. I, uh, I feel great. And uh, yeah, so I, I feel like I've uh, had a supernatural experience, uh, a, a miraculous experience with cancer. Mm, praise the Lord. And now my prognosis looks very, very good. Um, you know, that likely I'm in remission now, but if I'm in remission, um, I, uh, I met a doctor uh, who was diagnosed 15 years ago with mental cell lymphoma, and uh, he's, he's still doing great. Oh, uh, he's, on a, he's on a maintenance program with a, uh, an oral drug, which is all I'm taking right now, by the way, in the clinical trial. 
and uh, he's doing just fine. And so this, this cancer, you can go into remission for long periods of time, uh, 10, 15, 20 years. But now they also have a, a new therapy. It's called CAR T-cell. And uh, it's an autoimmune kind of therapy where they take T-cells out of your body, re-engineer them, reinsert them in your body, and it fights the cancer like heat-seeking missiles, finds cancer and kills it. And it's been very efficacious with other forms of cancer. It's not FDA-approved for mine yet, although I could do it if I wanted to because there are clinical trials I can get into. But, um, you know, my doctor and I both feel, uh, as well as other people that I've consulted, that, you know, I'm better off sticking with what I have right now. And when this, when this uh, therapy is perfected, maybe five years down the line or whatever, then maybe use that as the the next option. But at the present, I'll probably be able to function perfectly well for the next, you know, however long, 5, 10, 15, 20 years, whatever. Yes. Well, that certainly is our prayer, that that will be the case. Yeah. I have to ask you uh, this question uh, because it's something that I think a lot of people, when they get something terrible happens in their life, a lot of Christians kind of raise their fist to God and say, why me? Um, it doesn't appear to me from everything you've shared that you've ever had a moment like, why me? It, it sounds more to me like you have a testimony of why not me? And I just, I'm so, I was so moved by that. What do you think, what do you think propelled you more towards the positive there? You know, there's, I just think the majority of Christians, when bad things happen, are not propelled toward the positive. So what do you think pushed you in that direction so strongly? Well, you know, I'm living out what I've been teaching which is to say I have taught people on the Bible Answer Man broadcast through my books, through my talks, that uh, God doesn't answer the why question, that we have to learn to trust him in the midst of our whys. So, you know, I tell people, you know, from Job, you know, Job asks why. And God thunders back, you don't even know how to create a tiny drop of dew how would you understand what my purpose is and what my plans are? Trust me. I mean, that's the message, trust me. And, uh, and so I've been teaching that for many, many years, and I have the opportunity to, you know, to live that out, uh, to trust God in the midst of my whys. Uh, and, and, and I've learned to trust him. I've learned that God is trustworthy, and so... Um, I don't have to worry about what I can't understand. What I have to do is thank the Lord that he has demonstrated himself to be trustworthy over and over again. I mean, that's the same thing with ministry. You know, with ministry, you have difficult times. You know, we've had times of great, great deficits with our ministry financially. Well, um, you know, if you look at the track record, uh, you see that God has been faithful every single time. Right. And then you get into the next crisis and you wonder, is he going to be faithful this time? <laughs> and then the minute you wonder that, you think about the absurdity of that because yes, there's a do. there's a track record to go on. That's right. Yeah. And his track record is perfect. Yeah. You know, he uh, and he moves you through through different circumstances. You know, he uses these circumstances to teach you things, to move you uh, in different directions to, you know, in my case, I have a tremendous amount of empathy for people when I counsel them in, in whether it's on the Bible Answer Men broadcast or other circumstances. I have a tremendous amount of empathy for people. But 
there's a difference between having that empathy and actually experiencing suffering. Yes. And so it's a very good thing on a lot of levels. So yeah, I, I, I think the why not me, as you put it, is a, a really good way to put it. Oh, wow. Thank you for sharing all that, Hank. Is your family, how are they doing with this whole process that they have gone through with you? How are they holding up? Well, fantastic. I mean, I I think it's been encouraging to them. Uh, I think it's been really encouraging to them. And of course, you know, when when you have a tight-knit family, as I do, it's fantastic. My daughter, Christina, came back from... um, from Hong Kong, and uh, she helped Kathy and the rest of the kids uh, for a period of time. Um, and and uh, she helped me at the ministry. She came in and uh, sort of held my hand while I was doing the Bible Answer Man broadcast and, uh, you know, Facebook and all these kinds of things. Uh, so, you know, I, I, you know, sometimes you're, you're wondering, am I going to have the strength to get through it? And she was there and... and uh, and she's helped Kathy, you know, because, ca- you know, if, cancer is a little bit of a full-time job added to a full-time job because you have to go for blood tests and this and that and the other thing. So she was extremely helpful in keeping everything going. And, and she's still doing that. So uh, I'm f- very, very grateful for the way my kids have rallied around me. Yes, God's d- definitely given you a wonderful family, <laughs> to say the least. Uh, now, something you alluded to earlier was um, discouragement you had about the Protestant Church. So... I wanted to just ask you more specifically, what was, what was troubling you and what led you down the ancient path to Greek Orthodoxy, primarily? Yeah, you know, I did get very discouraged because of all the winds and ways of doctrine that are sweeping through the church, particularly today. Uh, you know, things like uh, all of a sudden it becomes a fad not to confess your sins. So now all of a sudden you have um, Christian teachers, not just fringe teachers, but very, very well-known apologetic titans teaching that, well, you, you can't confess your sins. You really can't use the Lord's Prayer because that's Old Covenant. And uh, God's forgiven you, and so if you uh, ask for forgiveness again or you confess your sins, it's like spitting in the face of God. And this gets traction, this gets traction, and it's lauded. And, you know, or you have the, you know, going back a few years, you have the prayer of Jabez. All of a sudden, if you learn a particular formula, a capricious God will answer your prayers, but you've got to know the formula. And then you get the parts out of heaven, and uh, you get answers to your prayers. Uh, you, all these winds and waves of doctrine that are sweeping through the church, to a large degree because of the fissuring that's taking place within Protestantism, meaning that every single year there are so many hundreds, if not thousands of people that have the gift of speaking or charisma, and uh, they hang up a shingle and they start a new permutation. And they have a particular angle uh, and and that becomes a new movement and a new book and this and that. And quite frankly, after a while, I got discouraged with it. And I thought, you know, I wonder how church was originally done. Is there any way of knowing that? Because really, quite frankly, you can be very biblically literate, but very historically illiterate. That's right. And And, and so you wonder, you know, is there any record of how the church was done? Uh, can you go back to an Ignatius of Antioch and get any information from him on how church was done at the time of the transition from the apostles to the early apologists? 
and early fathers of the church. Is there anything that we can learn? And so I started digging into this. And, uh, you know, this is sort of my habit. When I wrote my book, The Apocalypse Code on eschatology, I didn't write it until I'd been doing the Bible Answer Man broadcast for over 15 years. So when people would ask me questions about eschatology, I'd say, well, here are the various views. I'm not qualified. I hadn't even memorized the book of Revelation. So uh, I didn't feel like I was qualified to speak on the topic. And, and so I'd get the various views. But eventually I felt like I was qualified and I wrote the book, The Apocalypse Code. Well, the same thing was true here. I felt like I wanted Rick to... Rick squ- loves that book, by the way. <laughs> Rick has read it two or three times. Oh, I'm glad. I lo- uh, you know, it's my son David's favorite book as well. But yeah, so the same thing uh, happened with me looking into church history and saying, wow, you know, you can look at the Didache, for example, uh, and, and, and see, well, this is how they did church. And so as I looked historically, I found that you look at the ancient church, it never tried to be innovative. It tried to perpetuate uh, the Judeo-Christian tradition, you know, from Judaism through the time of Christ, through the time of the apostles, uh, to the followers of the apostles, to the apologists, to the early church fathers. So what I liked about the early church is it was trying to perpetuate. It was not trying to innovate. Uh, what I liked about the early church is that they hammered out the great creeds uh, through the great ecumenical councils. Uh, they hammered out uh, very, very important things with respect to the nature of God. Um, I fell in love really with the church fathers. You know, you think of the Arian Athanasian dispute. Um, and Athanasius saying, Athanasius contra mundum. Athanasius against the world. Uh, here I stand, you know. I, I, uh, and, and, and you see the, the early church fathers who stood for these great, great doctrines with respect to the nature of God. The fact that Christ was in fact divine, that he wasn't a mere creature. The fact that there's one person with two natures, 100% human, 100% divine. All this hammered out in the ecumenical councils and creeds as a legacy for the body of Christ. Um, you know, the early Nicene Council in 325, later uh, Nicene Council in 787, uh, where you have the big iconoclastic controversy where people were destroying icons, and then you had the church say no. Uh, the church unanimously said no. I mean, if you destroy icons, you have a bad Christology, because Christ is an icon. He's the icon of God. You have a diminished view of the incarnation, for Christ came and appeared. And then uh, the church determined that no, these, these are windows into the spiritual world. You can't worship icons, but you can venerate them. They are the heroes of the faith that are depicted in the great faith hall of fame in Hebrews chapter 11, etc. Right. When you say venerate, you're saying esteem. You highly esteem them. Exactly. Like, like Mary. You think about how she was highly esteemed. She was chosen out of all the people on the planet you know, to undo what Eve did. Eve was deceived. The first woman, Eve, was deceived. The second woman, Mary conceived and bore God, Theotokos, the God-bearer. And so you, you venerate Mary. You never worship her. 
but, but, but you venerate her because she is chosen, highly esteemed of God, uh, to bring God into the world. Um, and, you know, it's a wonderful thing. You could never say that Christianity is patriarchal because the icon uh, of greatest value to a Christian, the greatest exemplar is a woman, Mary. A woman of humility, chosen to be the vessel to bring God into the world. I mean, it's uh, just incredible. It makes me, uh, it gives me goosebumps even as I'm speaking about it, quite frankly. Yeah, so, you know, the, the idea is, is that you have a history. And so to get back to what I was saying earlier, instead of all of these winds and waves of doctrine, you can go back to what was hammered out in the church councils, in the creeds. You think of the Nicene Creed, for example, uniformly accepted by all Christians. Right. These creeds and these councils have incredible import. And there's a sense of liberation that I have with all of it, too, is because I can go back and not feel like I have to innovate in the 21st century, but I can go back and say, what did the church fathers say? Uh, we're pygmies standing on the shoulders of giants. Uh, so... I don't think that I need to feel as though somehow or other I have some new revelation in the 21st century, like the Catholics do, or many of the Protestants do. I mean, the Pope can speak ex cathedra, and now all of a sudden you have limbo and purgatory, and you know you have the uh, immaculate conception of Mary, and you know have all these kinds of innovative doctrines. Right. Um, that they're adding. That they're adding, and and the, the ancient church that they'll never do that. They'll never change. They will never innovate. Yes, and what you've really done is you've gone to the source. My father used to always say, go to the primary source. I can't think of anything better you've done than go to the primary source. You've, you've peeled back the layers, the centuries, and you've tried to understand from the beginning what was the church. And I think that that's absolutely critical that more Christians do that. Yeah, and I think that it's important to say in this context that I'm not suggesting to anyone that the Orthodox Church is a panacea. It's not. I mean, it's a great mission field, quite frankly. You know, there's a, a, a truism that tradition is the living faith of the dead, but traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. And traditionalism, unfortunately, has impacted the Orthodox Church all over the world. And quite frankly, if you talk to the patriarchs or the archbishops or the metropolitans, or you, you talk to the leadership of the Orthodox Church, they understand their own dilemma. So it's a great mission field. So in, in no way am I suggesting that, that this is the only way to go. What I am saying, though, is that it has committed me more than ever to mere Christianity, as C.S. Lewis put it, or, you know, as we have always said at Christian Research Institute, and this goes back to the time of your dad, in essentials unity, non-essentials liberty, and all things charity. So God has his people everywhere. He's got his people all over the place. The real thing we have to be is galvanized around the essentials of the Christian faith, and that's what I stand for as president of the Christian Research Institute. That's right, absolutely. And, and you saying that, you know, there's a mission field inside of even the Greek Orthodox Church. I look at there as being a mission field inside of the Greek Orthodox Church, the Catholic Church, the Protestant Church. You know, I think that there's a, a wide mission field running through it all, because as, as Scripture says, the wheat grows with the tares. That's, that's well I, said, yes. And I really, yeah, I really think that uh, the way that you have explained all of this, too, is, is tremendously, tremendously helpful. You know, the thing that probably... I love the most in terms of 
communicating the essence of orthodoxy is a quote by Vladimir Lossky. And uh, I, I probably won't get this word for word, but this is uh, the essence of it. It's pretty close. What he said was following the fall, the history of humanity is a history of shipwreck awaiting rescue. And then he said, but the port of salvation is not the goal. The goal is for the shipwreck to continue on a journey whose sole goal is union with God. And, and what that, in essence, is communicating is the difference between transactionalism and transformation. Meaning that uh, so much of the Christian world is about transaction. So I pray a prayer, now I get this card, keeps me out of hell, gets me into heaven, and I keep living like a baptized secular humanist. Right, it's like a name it and claim it salvation path. Yeah, it's just a transaction I had with God. And now I say, well, you know, I had this transaction, so, you know, I, I'm saying, well, what Vladimir Lossky is saying is, look, the port of salvation is not the goal. It's not that it's unimportant. It's obviously very, un- if you're shipwrecked and you get saved from the water, I mean, you're very, very happy. Mm-hmm. Well, but, but if you're shipwrecked and you got saved from the water, you don't want to get saved just to that rescue station, that port of salvation. Right. You, you want to continue on a journey. You want to continue on the journey of life that you got, you got rescued from the waves. Now you want to continue. And what is that goal? Well, that sole goal is union with God, which is to say that the goal is to have fellowship in the Trinity. It is that we have been brought in to the inner sanctum to have fellowship with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that's, that's the essence that I really appreciate in orthodoxy is that emphasis that You know, it's not a journey you go alone. You have to do it within the spiritual gymnasium, which is the church. That's where you receive the graces whereby you can become by grace what God is by nature. You don't become what God is by nature, but you become by grace what God is by nature. You become, as Peter put it, a partaker of the divine nature. And so I think that is something that is lost in most of evangelicalism. It's too transactional. It's not transformational. Now, of course, you know, again, as I said, within orthodoxy, you can have people that are just going through the the rituals and not realizing that this is supposed to be transformational. Right, so, as, in, right, as is true in the Protestant church as well in a lot of cases. So I think, I think it's what I, I love that quote you said, and I think that it's important that people understand that there has to be a transformation. The goal is to know, to know God and, and to be God-like, not to be God but to be God-like and yep. to know Him. Yep. As, your, as your Savior, there should be a transformation. I, I don't know how many times I've heard people say, so-and-so got saved in camp when they were 10. I know they're with the Lord, even though there was absolutely no fruit in their lives. And that, that's been my experience in the Protestant Church a lot, is I've heard a lot of those, those testimonies of grieving parents or people who are grieving for their friends. Well, they did, they did do this one time. And what people need to understand is that it's a life, salvation and coming to Jesus Christ is a life saving, transformative thing. It's, it's supposed to be something that happens, a change is supposed to occur. And so while, no, we're not saved by our works, our works are evidence that we are truly saved. The fruit of our life is the evidence. And I think that uh, people are losing that, losing that in a lot of directions. And I think it's, it's obviously spiritually dangerous yeah, for many. Exactly what you say is right. And you look at what James says about all of this, you know, uh, show me your faith without your deeds and I will show you my faith by what I do. That's right. And even, you know, the rhetorical 
foolish man, uh, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. Yeah. And so, you know, James later on says, so you see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. Now, the Orthodox take that passage and they don't say, well, you know, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 is now negated. No, they say, you are saved by God's grace through faith. You know, they affirm, uh, you cannot save yourself by what you do. But what they don't do, which happens in sort of the Western church in general, is they don't try to put faith in opposition to works, as though the two are competing. Uh, It's as you well said it a moment ago, you know, your faith is validated by what you do. And so, you know, there's many examples in James. You know, you have the example of Abraham. You also have the example of Rahab, the prostitute, considered righteous for what she did when she gave uh, lodging to the spies and then sent them off in a different direction. And so Paul concludes that as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. It's never like, well, you have to juxtaposition one against the other. It just doesn't happen in the Eastern Church. And that's another thing I love about the Eastern Church is they don't try to explain mysteries. You know, you can't explain how Christ can be one person with two natures. It's beyond our ken. You can't explain how Christ can be really present in the Eucharist. And so there are things that we just leave in the realm of mystery. It's beyond our ability to fully comprehend, but we trust God's Word. Yes, because we see through a glass darkly, as Scripture says. And um, just you bringing up the Eucharist makes me think of Martin Luther. And I've been reading some about him in recent months and all. And uh, he, of course, believed in Christ's presence uh, in the Eucharist, as uh, you have come to believe yourself. I guess I wondered, uh, what are your thoughts about Martin Luther in, this, in so much as he he's actually very Catholic at the time of his death, uh, it seems to me from all that I have read, that he actually uh, he wanted to uh, oppose and, and have some reform in the Catholic Church, things that troubled him, but his intention was never to leave the Catholic Church. What are your thoughts about Martin Luther? Well, he's a very complex, controversial person. That's a big subject, but let me say that uh, what you just described is absolutely accurate. Um, In fact, it's interesting that 12 years after the Reformation, in 1529, there was a great debate between Zwingli, the Swiss reformer, and Luther. It was at the Marsburg Castle. And, you know, already the Reformation started fissuring, fracturing. And so there are uh, many, many splits within the Reformation 12 years after Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses on the castle door in Wittenberg. And so there was this debate between Zwingli and Luther, and Zwingli was accusing Luther of bread worship. He was saying, how can you believe that Christ is really present? It's a memorial, it's a remembrance. How can you say Christ is really present? And Luther's response was was very measured. He said, if there was something I could disagree with the papists on, it would be this, but I can't. This is the This is the understanding of the church throughout all history. I can't go against that. And he said to Zwingli, uh, as part of his response, he said, 
you know, if you can explain to me how Christ can be one person with two natures, I'll explain to you how Christ can really be present in the Eucharist. <laughs> so he left it in the realm of mystery. Yeah. And he said if he could have disagreed with the papists on this, he would disagree, but he can't. He can't disagree with, at the time, 1,500 years of church history. Right. Exactly. I just struggle with, you know, you have had a lot of uh, attack on you since you joined the Greek Orthodox Church. And I just struggle personally, I guess, with uh, these affronts because I look at Martin Luther and I've been studying some of the Church Fathers and I just, I look at all of this, and I, I think that if people w- would just understand and realize and, and do some homework, they could understand uh, kind of your path much more clearly. And Martin Luther, I mean, he was really Catholic. You're, you're not Catholic. You're Greek Orthodox, which is distinctively different. And yet, I feel like you have kind of had a rough ride uh, since since you were chrismated and since you joined the Greek Orthodox Church. And I just think that if people had a better, clear understanding of who Martin Luther uh, truly was, that they could see they could see that you are, you know, as as truly a brother as he was, and and you are a brother in Christ as well. And just because your path has been to look back to the ancient church and and find your way to see where that where everything connects, uh, that doesn't that doesn't uh, make you come out not a believer it, it actually it actually is a believer just looking looking for more of the roots of the ancient church which i think is is very honorable actually so i guess i just i i see people quoting martin luther on facebook of course and all over the place and i think i think to myself how can they be so reverent of him and so you know just you know really basically he's their icon in a sense in a real sense and yet, some people have kind of categorized you differently than Martin Luther in a, in a disparaging way, which really doesn't logically make sense if you know the facts of history. So, I guess uh, I guess my thought is to you is that what what, would you, what do you say to people that question and say, well, no, he's left the faith, because that's such a harsh judgment, and it's certainly a false one. What, what, would, what would you say to someone who says that to you? Well, you know, I, I sympathize with people that that have that response because very, very few people know what Eastern Orthodoxy is all about. You know, and you've alluded to this. I mean, it's people think it's a form of Catholicism. It's not. Uh, nor was there ever a Reformation in the Eastern Church. And the Eastern Church had its own struggles. You know, there's a split between, and after Chalcedon, a split between the the Orthodox Church and the Oriental Orthodox Church, which is not completely resolved to this day. So they had their own issues. But Eastern Orthodoxy is not Western Christianity. I mean, Rome and the Reformers have more in common, uh, probably as quarreling cousins, than than Orthodoxy has in common with Roman Catholicism. So I think people simply, you know, don't want to be harsh, but I think sometimes they're uh, somewhat biblically illiterate and in some cases historically illiterate as well. You know, the split between the Eastern Church and the Western Church took place in 1054. And the Western Church had a completely different, a different experience than the Eastern Church had. And so if you're a Western Christian, you don't really 
know much about what's going on in the Eastern Church. And quite frankly, I knew that the Eastern Church was the Church of the Seven Ecumenical Councils. And, you know, I never spoke disparagingly about the Eastern Church, but until I really got into it myself, I didn't really understand Orthodoxy all that well. So it took a learning curve for me, and I can understand that people look at this and they, you know, the trolls on the web that, uh, you know, will say, you know, hey, Kennegraff's left the Christian faith and all of that, and they don't know what to think. And so I sympathize with that. You know, unfortunately, you know, we live in a era of time where people want to think the worst and they want to say sensationalistic things. But I think people that have known me for many years know I don't go off half-cocked, meaning that, you know, my goal is simply not to do what is expedient, what is popular, what is politically correct. I learned that from your dad. The pulpit is not a place for a popularity contest, your dad used to say. That's right. And this is not, for me, a place for a popularity contest. At the end of the day, I'm not going to answer to an internet troll. I'm not trying to disparage anybody, but I'm simply saying that's not who I'm going to have to answer to. Who I will answer to is God. And I will stand before him and give an answer, an account of my life. So people can say whatever they want about me. And... uh, you know, I, I'm acutely aware of my own imperfections, but the person that I'm concerned about is the triadic one. <laughs> you know, I'm concerned about what the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit think concerning me. You know, and will our Lord say, well done, good and faithful servant, or will my work be tested and found to be wood, hay, and stubble as opposed to gold, silver, and precious stones. So it's really immaterial to me what people say, except as how it affects other people in either building them up spiritually or breaking them down. Yeah. And I think yeah. that there are unfortunately all kinds of people that don't have discernment. They read the, the hysteria or the, um, you know, the internet lies or whatever you call it these days, fake fake news or whatever. And you can't do anything about it. It's the world we live in. Um, But what you have to do is walk uprightly before God and other people, let the chips fall where they may. And in saying all of that, I sometimes think when people say things that are untrue about me, I think, well, you know, if they could see me as God sees me, they would know that I'm a sinner saved by grace, you know, meaning that you know, I'm not guilty of any of the things that they've accused me of, but I am a sinner and <laughs> guilty before God. So That's right. Like we know, all are. Yeah. Yes, and you know what? And I've told you this before. You know, when you first joined the Greek Orthodox Church, I didn't know anything about it. And I was one of those people, you know, I say this in my book, actually, that I was having, you know, I felt like there was a theological cardiac arrest in the evangelical world. <laughs> and I, I feel like, in part, I kind of was part of that cardiac arrest in my lack of ability to understand what direction this was that you were in. And I did listen to some people online, some, and then I prayed about that. And it really wasn't until I did my own investigation, you know, really, really followed church history and tried to, you know, get away, go to the sources and to really try to understand uh, where you were coming from and what your path was. And it was when I did that uh, with Rick uh, that we really began to understand more clearly 
uh, that that you had, you know, you had done a choice that may not be something that every Christian makes for a church choice, but it certainly wasn't a choice that took you away from Jesus Christ. It certainly didn't lead you, you know, away from Jesus Christ. In fact, the Lord has used your choice to draw you closer to Him. Absolutely. And so, yeah, and so I, I, I feel like in some sense I understand some of the misunderstandings that are out there, because I know that I was that person at one time, too, wondering, okay, what is that church, and, and what do they believe, and is is that okay? You know what I mean? Because I was so uninformed, and, I mean, frighteningly uninformed. And I think this has been such a great thing in the sense that it's caused me to really look back through the history and really be blessed and really uh, enjoy um, marking that path of church history to where we are today. And it's just been an interesting journey. And I think until people are willing to actually see the path backwards that brought us to where we are now today, they can't really begin to grasp, you know, that what you what you are doing is, is really, it, it's not apart from Christianity, you are under the Christian umbrella. And like you always say in Essentials, you know, unity. And that's what our focus needs to be. There's so many other things around us that we need to be looking out for. This certainly is not one of them. <laughs> so, uh, well, I appreciate you saying that. That's yeah. Uh, I'm sorry, I, I didn't mean to go off like that. No, but, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm glad you did. It's very, very helpful. But uh, yeah, and I think that your journey has helped us. It's really opened up our minds and hearts in a, in a way in a, in a different direction that I had. Uh, I had never been before in understanding, because I really, really wanted to understand. We know we love you. We know you as a brother and love you as a brother, and we wanted to understand. And I think that that's what we're supposed to do with each other. We're supposed to try to understand, and we're supposed to seek one another out. And you were good, you know, with, you know we came to you, and, and you were loving, and you gave us answers. And I think that was a good example of how we're supposed to treat one another in love in these kind of circumstances. And so I, I just really applaud you for that. Thank you, Cindy. That means the world to me. Now, this is changing directions once again, but I wanted to ask you about Elliot Miller, our mutual dear friend and brother that uh, had his own battle with cancer and is now at the Lord. And I just wondered if you could share just a couple a couple thoughts about Elliot and uh, maybe some of your last moments, if you're okay with that. And uh, I just I had heard from Corrine that you had brought them groceries, and they just were so blessed by your visits to them uh, during the time that Elliot was was getting close to going home to be with the Lord. So I just wondered what some of your thoughts are. Well, you know, I alluded to this earlier, but Elliot, like your dad, was committed to truth. And, uh, you know, when he was dying, I remember him asking me questions about how I was able to write so many books. And uh, he was saying to me, you know, sometimes I feel like I haven't done enough. And I said, Elliot, you cast such a large shadow. You've been so faithful for so many years. And he started weeping. Um, and he said, I'm going to take that with me to my grave. But he was uh, truly a person that cast a long shadow. I mean, he, um, he, he was a person that was known for truth. I mean, he, I'll, I'll tell you the greatest story uh, from my perspective is what he did with um, what's known as the Lord's Recovery uh, or the local churches. Because, you know, here he was on, he was at the fountainhead of writing materials uh, 
that 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 castigated this group as being cultic. And so when I originally met with the recovery as requested by a former, um, how should I say it, uh, an agent. He was more than an agent. He was a friend, Celia Yates. He um, suggested that um, that I meet with them. Uh, you know, they wanted to meet with me, and I. He suggested I do that. He felt like it was a a worthwhile thing to do. You know, to meet and talk, and and so I did. And you know, the things that we believed about them, they said, no, no we, we don't believe, uh, we're not modalists, we're thoroughly Trinitarian, we don't believe that we can be like God is in the Godhead, we don't believe that we're the only church, we believe that we're only church, etc. So the things that we said, or Elliot and Gretchen Passantino, who was also a titan in the apologetic world, well, what a great person she was, but they had been at the fountainhead of writing information about this group. And so when I met with them, I felt like, you know, I'm a neophyte. I don't really know that much about this group. I know a little bit. I know about our statements and so forth. But I I wasn't really a, at the fountainhead as Gretchen and Elliot were. So I decided to bring them into this project because I felt like they would look at this from the standpoint of CRI, the position CRI had always held. Mm-hmm. But also I knew that they were both people of truth. Yeah. Um, and of course, we're speaking primarily here about Elliot, but it was very, very true of Richard as well. Yeah. They were just co- deeply committed to truth, and, and, and they had such an incredible impact on in mentoring me over the years. I'll be eternally grateful to both of them. But, but anyway, I figured, you know, if anyone can get to the bottom of this, it would be Elliot Miller. And he had every every motivation, I would say, to affirm his earlier position, which was the position of CRI. Mm-hmm. So I assigned uh, he and Gretchen to this project, and Elliot did first-rate primary research, a project that, uh, you know, Elliot wasn't the quickest person in the world, but it was very thorough. Mm. And that's why it wasn't quick. It wasn't because he was... Right, no, thorough. It was just thorough. And uh, the project lasted six years and ended up with a journal we were wrong. That that journal has transformed the lives of so many people around the world. It is, I mean, you just can't, you just, I hear stories when I travel around the world, of families that were broken and separated because of this issue, you reunited. Um, just transformational stories. But this was a function of Elliot not saying, well, you know, I don't want to have egg on my face, but rather being willing to follow truth wherever it leads. And, and I think this is one of the great characteristics of Elliot Miller that I appreciate about him. I also appreciate many things about him. He was very, he was very, very funny. He would, when he laughed, um, I mean, you could hear it throughout the whole, the whole ministry. When it, he would just laugh. Mm-hmm. And even when he was, you know, I went to visit him in the hospital uh, one time, and this was actually, he had a a, a diverticulitis, I believe it was. He was dealing with perforation and and a lot of pain and everything else. And he was in the hospital bed and Corinne was there. And I walked in and um, the nurse was there and Elliot, he perked up, he said, that's my boss, you know. And and, uh, (laughs) and, uh, I could tell he was in pain. And uh, so I, I tried to bring a little levity to the circumstance. I said to Elliot, you know, I, I got to get something off my chest. There's something that really bothers me about you. In fact, a couple of things that really bothered me. Everything that I do, you copy me. 
And he's looking at me real intently, and I, I don't know, Corinne doesn't know what's going to happen. I say, you know, everything, first of all, we had the same birthday. <laughs> yep. You know, so, you, you, so I'm born July 18th, 19th, a year later, you have to copy me. And I said, then, uh, you know, I get stage four cancer, and then you have to copy me again, like this. And, you know, Elliot, you know, when he laughs, it's like hair on fire laughing. I know. And he started... <laughs> He started burst out laughing because all of a sudden he realized that I was just playing with him, mm-hmm. which I used to do all the time. And he said, um, well, Hank, I can't let you have all the glory. <laughs> so, uh, that sounds but, like Elliot. Yeah, we had a, he was a great guy. And, and I, you know, one, one of those unique, he wasn't cookie cutter. He was just a unique human being. He certainly was. And he lives on with our Lord and, He's well, there's the no question now. about that. I mean, and, you know, he, um, he suffered. Um, it was difficult to see him. Um, you know, I, 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 in fact, I told Stephen and, and Paul Young, of course, they've been here for almost 30 years each, and yeah. I told them, um, I, I came back from my last visit with Elliot, and I said, you know, if you want to see Elliot before he dies, you need to go down right now. Mm-hmm. I said, I don't think he's going to be with us much longer. I could just tell he had that, you know, that look. He had that death yeah. rattle. He had that look. And yeah. So I didn't think that uh, he would survive his cancer. And uh, fortunately, I was able to spend really good quality time with him before he died. Oh, I'm glad for that. We, we did have some phone time. I wish we could have seen him again. But we're thankful for the phone time that we had. And, and he definitely, just even talking to him on the phone, we could tell it was, and we had just talked to you too, and you'd already kind of filled us in anyway, but even talking to him on the phone, it was, it was very evident that it was his time, that God was, yeah. God was calling him. Yeah, absolutely. God was calling him. Absolutely. Um, switching gears again on you, um, what do you perceive as the greatest modern-day threat to the church, Hank? Well, that's an interesting question because there are a number of ways in which I would answer that. I mean, on the one hand, if you think about threats from without, um, I, I look at the the forces of insistent secularism, you know, the philosophical naturalism, the scientism, the isms of our day. They're the new cults of our day. Um, So you have the forces of insistent secularism on the one hand, and then you have Islamic jihad on the other. Islam is growing. It's the fastest growing religion in the world. You know, it is filling a vacuum that is left by native populations in the Western world dying out. If you look at Western civilization in general, it's not just related to Europe. You can talk about New Zealand and places like that. People that have been affected by uh, the Christian ethic uh, that built their economies, their societies in the Christian ethic, those native populations are dying out. And uh, uh, simply demographic, the birth rate is far less than the death rate. And so the native populations are dying out. And filling the vacuum are millions of polygamous Muslims uh, who have no intention whatsoever of assimilating into Western culture. And so, uh, you know, that's uh, the proverbial python swallowing its prey with a long and slow digestion. But let me say that, that having said that 
those are great threats against the Christian church. I think the greatest threat, the greatest modern day threat to the church today is not external, it's internal. And the way I explain that is by saying that pagans are always going to exercise their job description. Non-Christians are going to exercise their job description. So the question becomes, are Christians going to exercise their job description? And the problem is that the answer is roundly no. The church is lethargic. The church has lost its way in the West. So pagans do what pagans are designed to do. The question is, will Christians do what they were commissioned to do? You know, we're ambassadors for Christ. Most Christians are secret agents. You know, I usually joke that they've never blown their cover before the unregenerate world. And Jesus said it very plainly. If the salt loses its saltiness, how will it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. And this is essentially what you found. We have an impotent church. I think so, too. A church that's a microcosm of the world. And, you know, you think about if you took a pound of salt and put it in a quart of water, that water would be very, very salty. You look at the number of Christians or professed or people that take the sacred name of Christ upon their lips in our culture, uh, you would think that our culture would be pretty salty, that the Christian ethic would permeate the culture. We'd be transformational agents in the culture, but it's not happening. So the only thing you can assume is that the salt is either in Ziploc bags in the water, and it's not permeating the water at all. And not only that, but many Ziploc bags, so the salt is separated from each other. There's so much division within the church. Hmm. So I think the biggest threat against the church is its own apathy. Hmm. And so the church has to, again, regain a vision for making reproducing disciples. This is the Great Commission, which has become the great omission of the church. Mm-hmm. I think that the power of deification, as Peter said, becoming partakers of the divine nature, that is what should animate the church. That's what gives us a power that is in us, but not of us. You know, Paul talks about this when he says in Colossians, we proclaim Christ admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that everyone may be perfected in Christ. And he says, to this end, I am energized by all his energy, which so powerfully energizes me. Meaning that we can uh, work on our own power. We can be on the sidelines, not working at all, or we can, yeah, yeah, or we can, we can operate with all his energy. Yeah, his power. So we have to be energized by a power that is in us, but not of us. The engrafted life, the not just changed life, but the exchanged life, the life of Christ within, that, that well that Jesus Christ talked about. To the woman at the well, you know, that, that is living streams of water within. So you thirst no more. So you need discipleship, but it has to be powered, energized by a power that's in us, but not of us, as I just said. And, and I think then we have to use the means that God has given us. We have to use the, uh, the digital highways, the digital platforms that God has given us. The interconnectivity for the first century church was the Roman roads. The interconnectivity for the modern church is the digital highway. Yeah. So it, it's important that we utilize that, but utilize it properly. It can never replace the embodied church life. No, no. 
But the last thing I'll say in this regard, I think it's critical that the church recognizes this unity in essentials. Benjamin Franklin said, if we don't hang together, we're going to hang separately. And I think that we need to work together on common cause issues, that the fissuring in the church has to become fusion. Fusion is hard. It takes a lot of work. Um, yes, and this is C.S. Lewis's you know, point from your Christianity, too. I think trying to draw people together on the essentials. Absolutely. And to love one another. Yeah, and isn't this what the Lord said? He said, I pray not only for these, but also for all of those who will hear about me because of their word, that they may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I am in you, that they may be one in us, so that the world might believe that you sent me. Now, that's the Lord praying. And we can't say, well, that's impractical, it's impractical, it's not going to happen. And well, look, we can't say that. If the Lord prayed this, we have to move in that direction as well. Now, this is not a kumbaya unity. No, it is a unity around the essentials of the Christian faith. That's right. Within that context, we can work together, not only can, but we must. If we don't, we're going to be impotent in the face of what I just mentioned, the two great threats, the forces of insistent secularism, and uh, on the one hand, and Islamic jihad on the other. Yes, absolutely. It's interesting, too, because as you were talking, too, I was thinking back to an interview I saw of my father, and it was on TVN, actually, in 1987, and one of the burdens of his heart was how dark the evangelical church had grown. And the Protestant movement and all had, it was just gotten so, uh, people were just really going astray. And that his concern was, your concern, you know, open up those bags and pour out the salt. Where's yeah. the salt? Where's the light? Yeah, yeah. That's Wake right. up, church. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And he had the same, you know, kind of clarion call. Well, he is <laughs> prophetic. Know, he is prescient. Close to huh. his death. You know, same thing. You guys are so in sync with so much. I just really see the hand of God with having had both of you there and you there now. And I just to see the hand of God. Uh, when you would arrive in heaven someday, Hank, uh, God willing, decades from now, um, who besides Jesus Christ uh, do you want to fellowship with and why? Well, you know, it's a hard question to answer because when we get to heaven, we're going to see things from a different perspective than we see them here, meaning that the heroes that we have here may pale by comparison to the heroes that we see there because there's so many people you know, we think about the heroes as the people that have the platforms, right? The big name evangelicals that have gone on before us or the big names within the early church. You know, I, I mentioned some of them. We think of them immediately, right? The Martin Luthers. I and mean, these are the things that come to mind. But my sense is when we get there, we're going to find some person that maybe we didn't respect or think much of because they they didn't meet the standards that we set in our own minds. You know, it's like the woman that gives the might, right? And Jesus sees that woman and commends that woman because she's given out of her poverty. And I, I think so we'll have a completely different valuation of things in the greatest size than we do right now. So I temper my remarks, you know, by that qualification. But obviously, you know, the people that were heroes to me, your dad included, I mean, these are people you want to have conversations with. You know, my dad who's gone on, you know, into eternity. Yeah. You know, the reunion with people that we've talked about in this this uh, 
this podcast, I would call it. This is what turned into a podcast. But, uh, you know, Gretchen Passantino, um, yes. Bob Passantino, uh, Elliot Miller, um, you know, my good friend R.C. Sproul, and so many others. You know, even people that, um, you know, I had some disagreements with. Those will have vanished when we get into eternity because now we're going to see things as they really are and we're going to be able to love as as we're loved in a true sense, not uh, phileo love necessarily by itself or eros love, but agape love, you know, where we're going to have God's love. And so so I think we'll, we'll see things differently, but obviously the people that I mentioned and many others are people that you'll enjoy reunion with. But I, I think also people that, uh, you know, I think about our baby Grace that died as a preborn child, you know, to think about the idea of rushing into her arms in eternity. Yeah. So, yeah, it's beyond our full capacity to understand the joy that we'll experience at that time. That's right. Very well said. What godly counsel would you give to your grandchildren, great-grandchildren, you know, if they someday hear this in your home with the Lord and they're listening to granddad or grandpa? What do you go by? Are you called granddad or grandpa? Uh, boy, all kinds of names. Uh, Are you called all yeah, kinds of names? Sometimes it's papa, <laughs> sometimes it's grandpa, <laughs> you know. Yeah, so, you know, the, the kids have their own little standards, Aww. you know. Um, but but it's all it's all wonderful. What godly counsel would you want to, you're speaking right to them now, if they ever tune in and hear you talking, what do you want to say to them? Well, you know, the first thing that comes to mind, Cindy, is only one life soon will be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Mm. I mean, that's Amen. the thing I think about all the time. I think about what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. There's only one foundation. That foundation is Jesus Christ. But on that foundation, you can build. You can build using wood, hay, and straw. Or you can build using precious materials, the gold, the silver, the precious stones. And the day of the Lord will reveal what you've built with. If you've built with inferior materials, the the image that Paul gives us is that you'll be saved, but only as someone escaping through the flames. So it's the idea of a, a man rushing out of a burning building with nothing but charred clothes upon his back. Hmm. You'll be saved, but you'll have no reward. And, you know, what did Jesus talk about all the time? He talked about reward. Behold, I come quickly. My reward is with me. I'll give to everyone according to what he's done. Do not labor for that which is perishing, but labor for that which is eternal. You know, and Jesus was constantly, don't lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust corrupt, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not corrupt, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Amen. So if your treasure's in heaven, that's where your heart goes to. If your treasure's on earth, that's where your heart goes to. Yeah. And it's very difficult because we live in... You know, by all standards, we live in a very, very wealthy country. Um, you know, I've traveled around the world, and the poorest among us are wealthy. And, you know, the great thing is is not wealth, but the great thing is storing up for yourself treasures in heaven. Yeah. Uh, and wealth is so easy to become addicted to. And that's why Jesus said, you know, it's just easier for a poor man to enter the kingdom of heaven than for a rich man, you know, because the rich, the riches have a way of intoxicating us. 
And so it's, um, you know, this is why sometimes it's good to have some falls, economically to have some falls, uh, even when we're going through the what's called the Great Recession. You know, it, it's, it's kind of good because it, uh, it, it gives you a little semblance, at least, of what people experience around the world on an ongoing basis. So I'd want them to know that, you know, the, the big thing is to lay up for yourself treasures in heaven. I'm firmly convinced that there are degrees of reward in heaven and there are degrees of punishment in hell. So what we do now counts for all eternity. Yes, that's scriptural. Absolutely. That's wonderful. Thank, thank you for that. Uh, what is your life's verse? Well, you know, <laughs> I've had various life verses over the years. Uh, but, you know, the one that I sign all of my letters with now, uh, and I have been for a long time, because at the Christian Research Institute, what we now say is not only because truth matters, but because life and truth matter. And that really comes from 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Yeah. You know, the doctrine I would equate to truth there. You know, watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. So, you know, the whole context of that is where Paul is talking to young Timothy and he's saying, Don't like it, anybody look down at you because you're young. But right. set an example for the believers in speech and life and love and faith and in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching, to teaching. And then he says to Timothy, do not neglect your gift, which was given to you through a prophetic message when the body of elders laid their hands on you. Be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. And then, you know, the verse 16 where he says, watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them. Because if you do, you'll save both yourself and your hearer. So that's a very precious passage to me. And it's, uh, at least for the last few years, whenever I sign my name below my name, whether I'm autographing books or whatever, I put First Timothy 4.16. Yes, very, very powerful. Very powerful. Thank you, Hank, so much for setting aside this time to just dig into some questions. And Well, it was fun. And you actually turned out to be a great interviewer. Oh, I am. <laughs> You're my first person I've ever interviewed. I've always kind of thought I wanted to go in that direction. Well, you are uh, definitely gifted. I will tell you, I've done a lot of interviews over the years, and I don't say this with anything but total sincerity. I'm amazed at how good, uh, you know, I was a little tired, and, and you brought me out of my shell, and you uh, asked very pertinent questions, and you made very insightful comments. So, yeah, you're definitely gifted. Oh, well, thank you for that encouragement. I really appreciate it. And I just, I love having had this time and just hearing your responses and to questions that have kind of floated around in my mind for a while. And it's just kind of nice to be able to hear from your heart these responses. And I just can't tell you how much that means to me. So I appreciate it so much. And I know Rick does too. He has hung in here and <laughs> sat by me the entire time. <laughs> So thank you so much, and I, I hope I just didn't wear you out too much here. <laughs> well, I'm going to go have a nice uh, sleep tonight and uh, back at it tomorrow. But yeah, I, I totally enjoyed having this conversation with, with like I said, I started out with uh, trying to get my equilibrium and just did the Bible Answer Man broadcast, a little worn out, and you made a lot of fun. Oh, I'm so glad. Well, thank you for joining us on this special edition of Hank Unplugged. 
Again, this is the podcast that brings some of the most informative, inspirational, interesting people directly to you. This was a special twist on Hank Unplugged, and I think you'll agree that Cindy Martin Morgan did an incredible job of drawing me out, asking me questions uh, to get at the root of many of the things that I have experienced as president of the Christian Research Institute, and really in my own journey, my life as a Christian. If you enjoyed this Hank Unplugged podcast, go to iTunes, give us a five-star rating. But above all, share this podcast with family members, friends, people within your sphere of influence. That'll make sure that Hank Unplugged continues to impact a new generation, not only for time, but for eternity as well. Again, thanks for tuning in to this special edition of Hank Unplugged. Look forward to seeing you next time. So long for now.